Well, good morning. good morning. All right, how's everybody doing this morning? All right, a few people are doing good. That's okay. But I know it's a rainy day, but I'm so glad to be here with you today. I want to say welcome to my LaGrange campus. Hey, guys, look, I'm on the big screen. I love you guys, and I miss you very much. But I also want to welcome all of those of us joining um, live around the world. And because of that this morning, I wanted to be able to translate into German my message as I go. So I'll say it in English and I'll say it in German for the benefit of our worldwide audience. So good morning, guten Morgen. <clears throat> May I introduce myself to you? Darf ich mich vorstellen? Uh, that's all I remember in two years of college German, so we won't do that anymore. But wouldn't that be annoying if I did that the whole service? Man. But... Um, I am actually so happy to be here and get to be with you all this morning. You know, uh, whoever preaches up here in Noonan, we get to push them up on the big screen in LaGrange. And it's, it's quite an interesting thing that happens, but with all of our technology and the ability to simulcast, uh, sometimes things go wrong. And as a campus pastor, one of my great responsibilities is I get to stand up and finish or start whatever was going on. So whether it's the beginning of the message or, or near the end of a prayer, I get to step up and, and finish going on with, with the service. And so that's always an exciting thing for us to do. You know, and the thing is, we never know when it's going to happen. We never know when we're going to have a technical difficulty. So every Sunday has a chance of being kind of a, an improv, if you will. And so I guarantee you, no one prays harder on Sunday mornings than I do. Uh, except for this morning, Micah Puckett has that responsibility. So he's the one who gets to cover in case something happens. And so, you know, I just want to say, Jesus. Now, was that the most inspirational thing you've ever heard? <laughs> Micah just peed his pants right about now. <laughs> Good times. But uh, I do want to stop for a moment and, and recognize the fact that this is Memorial Day weekend. And we celebrate Memorial Day tomorrow. And, and, you know, this is a very busy weekend for so many of us. We're traveling. There's been high school graduations. I've seen posts nonstop about high school graduations. But I wanted to take a look back and see what Memorial Day is really all about. Uh, President Reagan once said this, Memorial Day is a day we put aside to remember fallen heroes and to pray that no heroes will ever have to die for us again. It's a day of thanks for the valor of others. A day to remember the splendor of America and those of her children who rest in cemeteries across the country. It's a day to be with family and remember. So we take a moment and join me in thanking those who gave the highest price they could have paid for our freedom. You know, for many of us, Memorial Day kicks off the summer. Now, I love summer vacation. And I have very fond memories of vacation, especially with my family. Now, when our first daughter, Joe was born, I, I wanted to be the best parent I could be. And so I wanted her to be clean and to always have everything she needed. So I remember, like, we would give her a bite of food and immediately wipe her mouth. Give her another bite and wipe it again. You know, she couldn't be dirty. I can remember walking around the house with a rag, like, following her everywhere she went and cleaning things and cleaning her to make sure that she was clean. So the first time we took her to the beach... She absolutely hated the sand. I remember we, we sat her down on the beach and she took her hand and put it into the sand and, and then she pulled it out and was like, eww. And so we washed it and got all the sand off of it. You know what she did? She took it right back in the sand. And we did that for about a half hour. And so I, I came up with a, an elaborate setup to protect my daughter. So we had this inflatable boat. So I set it up and I poured water into it because apparently she didn't like the waves either. So I sat her in that boat. 
And then I had a bucket of water next to the boat in case she got a speck of sand on her, I could wash that off. And then all of that was under an umbrella because of course you got to keep the sun off your kid as well. So again, we were first time parents. But, but then this weird thing happened. We kept having kids. I, I'm not sure what that is all about, but every few years, like another child would show up. And by our fourth child, uh, we were not as picky as we once were. I remember when we took Alexa to the beach for the first time, she got into the sand, she was playing, she took a shovel and she looked at it and then she started licking it like it was a sucker, you know? And then she'd reach her hand in the sand and just start eating it. And I just remember looking at my wife going, well, that's gonna be a fun diaper to change. But <clears throat> so when it comes to family vacations, it doesn't matter what end of the spectrum you're on, there's gonna be no judgment here. Just hope you guys have a great one when you go. But let me also say that I love my church. We came to Southcrest four years ago, and I've been on staff for three years. We, we came to Southcrest at a time, a very difficult time for our family. We were hurting and in pain. And when we came here, we felt love. We had healing and we felt accepted here. And so I absolutely love this church. I remember that very first Sunday. We uh, were invited by a family in LaGrange to come join them. We come in the building and there's like thousands of people I've never met before. And I'm gonna be honest, it was a bit overwhelming and so we were just like, how do we get past this point? And so we joined a life group. We started attending that life group. And then when we'd come to church on Sunday, we would begin to recognize people and begin to connect to people. Uh, I was a former youth pastor. And so I decided, hey, let's start serving on Wednesday nights with students. So we started coming on Wednesday night, working with middle schoolers. My wife and I both led a middle school life group on Wednesday nights. And we continued to recognize more people as we came. And then we're like, well, what else can we do? Well, since we're driving from LaGrange, it's a long drive. Let's, let's serve in guest services. So we'd come at 9.30 and serve in guest services. And then 11 o'clock, we'd come to worship. So I got to meet a lot of people doing that. And the really cool thing was I could meet someone else who was overwhelmed for their first time. I could empathize with them and help them to get connected. And so we started doing more to get connected. We then started a new life group and continued that journey of starting groups and just getting more and more connected. I came on staff, and shortly after that, we launched our LaGrange campus in September of 2014. We launched at the movie theater in downtown LaGrange. We met there for a couple of years, and then Easter of this year, we had our opportunity to get a permanent facility in LaGrange. And it's been an amazing time to watch God bring people to himself. In our first month at our new permanent facility, we've already baptized eight people, and God is moving and doing great things. And so I wanna thank you, from, from the city of LaGrange, I wanna say thank you for being a campus that has a bigger vision, that loves people, that supports and is generous. So thank you so much for all that you do. I love my church. You know, Caleb did a fantastic job last week sharing with us about identity and what that means and, and how God says who we are and not our circumstances. But today I wanna to talk to you about faith. What is faith? And why is it important? If, if you've ever had children or if you've heard of children, you've probably heard of this time called the terrible twos. So, so why are the twos so terrible? Well, it's actually very interesting when you find out. You see, when you're born, your brain is wired a certain way. And so you gather information a certain way. Around the age of two, nerve endings in your brain start to pick up and move. The brain is being transfigured differently. And so what happens is the way a child learns is completely new. And so they're extremely curious. They want to find out what's happening, what's going on. And we call that as parents getting into everything. They come up with this word. And many of you as parents have heard it before. It's why, 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 
Why? And they ask it over and over again. Now, I found a way to end the why questions. Just give them the scientific, truthful answer. It's over their heads. They don't know anymore, and they'll stop asking why. But we tend to do that. They're hungry for information, but all of this information they're getting is borrowed. In other words, everything they know comes from what mommy and daddy says. In other words, mommy and daddy say so. So we tell them things like the stove is hot, don't touch. Knives are sharp, stay away. Daddy is a superhero. We share with them everything we know. Now this, this world of borrowed knowledge, this system is neither good nor bad, but is only as reliable as the information we give them. And so they go through life gaining information. Now our spiritual journey is very similar. I, w- I would bet that most people in this room heard about Jesus and heard about Christ from someone else. Your first impression of Jesus was borrowed from what someone else told you their experience was of him. And there's nothing wrong with that because we wouldn't know him any other way. You see, mom and dads, grandparents, pastors, share with you about Jesus, and that's how you begin to to formulate your belief system. Everything you knew as a young Christian was the way somebody else interpreted scripture and then relayed that information to you. But then something interesting happens. We grow up. And as a child grows up, they hit this amazing time in life called puberty. That's a parent and child's favorite time of life. But you know what happens at puberty? Terrible twos. The brain actually is rewired again. The nerve endings around 12 or 13 actually pick up, move around again, and the way that a child processes information completely changes. In other words, everything that had been borrowed now has to be proven. It's a time of authenticating. It's a time where they say, all right, this is what I was told. Is this real? Can I trust this? Is this true? And so what word pops back up in their vocabulary? Why? They start asking why again all the time. Now, parents, especially if middle schoolers, I want to share something with you. Just because your child asks why doesn't mean they're being disrespectful. There is a strong probability a lot of times they're asking why is to find out, is it true? Or why does it matter? Sometimes they ask why to figure out how do I fit into this family dynamic? What place do I have in my family? Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes they ask why just to be a total pain, but, but not necessarily so. And so we go through this time where they're asking why all over again. You see, this is a time when they walk over to the stove and they put their hand over and they're like, yeah, that is hot. They realize in this moment that daddy is not a superhero. But let's be honest. Can you guys picture your dads in tight neon spandex tights? I mean, really? Some of you just got a great mental picture and all I have to say is, you're welcome. But this is also a time when we start to question our faith. And for many people, this is a time in their life where their faith is stalled. Now, another reason I love my church is what Cameron talked about. This coming week is beach week. Now, my daughters love beach week. Two of them are going and they, they absolutely love everything about beach week. But here's what I know to be true about beach week they are going to hear and experience God's truth. And they're gonna be walked through making that borrowed knowledge they know authentic. And the cool thing about it is there are adults who are giving up a week of their own personal vacation to go to the beach, to love on students, to share the truth of Jesus with them so they can come to know who he is. You know, the cool thing about God is he's not surprised by much. And so when it comes to this topic of faith, 
He knew we were going to struggle with it. He knew we would have doubts and questions. So if you have a Bible or Bible app, if you could open to the book of Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to camp out there for a few moments. But let me give you a little background first. Hebrews is a letter written, though we're not sure who wrote it, but it's written to the Jews in Jerusalem, to the Christian Jews in Jerusalem. The first 10 chapters of Hebrews, the focus is on the preeminence of God and who Jesus is and how he's over everything else. You see, he spends the first 10 chapters saying that Jesus is greater than Abraham, that he's greater than Moses, that he's greater than David. He even goes in to say that he's greater than the angels. And he builds this case for that. And then we see in the last three chapters, he spends a lot of time talking about faith and how faith is better than works and how it's better than the law. And so he has the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11, the first three verses, define exactly what faith is. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So what we see in this first verse of Hebrews is there's two indicators of what faith is. The first is this, it is the assurance of things hoped for. You see, it is a firm persuasion and expectation that God will perform all the miracles he told us he would. Now, this persuasion is so strong in us that we begin to have this present reality and this, and this proof that the promises of God are true. You see, Christ dwells in our souls by faith. And we begin to understand the fullness of God in that moment. But why is this important? Why is this assurance so important? Well, as we exercise faith and as we walk in this journey of faith, we begin to experience what the Bible calls joy unspeakable. We begin to experience this connection to God in a way that we begin to understand his glory. And in the moment that happens, we begin to live a life of joy. And that joy becomes evidence to people around us of what God is doing. That joy becomes our testimony. Now, when I was young, and I'm sure many of you can relate to this, when someone said the word testimony, it's because they wanted you to share it with somebody else. They wanted you to walk up, knock on somebody's door, just walk up to some stranger in the crowd and be like, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. That's extremely uncomfortable. But see, God never intended it that way. He wanted us to live with an assurance of faith and so that we live with joy. And so this is what our testimony would be. As we live our life, as we go day by day, people around us see us. They see how we handle a situation. They see how we handle stress or the loss of a loved one. And like, how in the world do you have joy? And you get to say, because Jesus, you get to share your testimony. See, we get to live out that great commission of telling people about him, but it's because they're asking us about him because we live this way. Now, the second thing that we see about faith is it is the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. Now, the word here for conviction used in the Bible is the only time it's ever used in the Bible. It is the Greek word, and it is elenkos. It means proof or evidence. If you went home today and looked up elenkos on the internet, you would find nothing but information about the Socratic method. See, elenkos is the foundation of the Socratic method, and all that is is asking questions until you get to the truth. Continue to ask questions and probe until you can find truth. Now, when I hear the word proof, I'm immediately thinking of mathematics and geometry. 
It takes me back to my sophomore year of high school and my geometry teacher, Mr. Plunk. Now, Mr. Plunk, that was his real name, by the way. Mr. Plunk looked like Vizzini from The Princess Bride, but, but he had glasses. He was a little squirrely little fella. <clears throat> and um, he taught us geometry. Now, this is, this is true. Back then, we had this amazing technology. It was called overhead projectors. Now, I'm not going to make this up. This is, this is true. You can look it up. You could take a marker and you could write with that marker and it would magically appear on the wall of the classroom and everybody could see it. It was absolutely incredible. I'm not making this up, kids. It's true stuff here. Now, the problem is, is that you had to erase the marker and Mr. Plunk never seemed to have an eraser. I mean, all my other teachers had erasers, but I guess they stole them from Mr. Plunk, but he never did. So he would just take his hand and he would rub it all away. So whenever you saw Mr. Plunk in the hallways, he always had like marker stains right there on his hands. It was awesome. But I remember our whole second semester was spent learning about proofs. Now, I'm one of those weirdos who actually enjoyed proofs, but I'll share why. You see, a mathematical proof is an argument that begins with known facts, proceeds from there through a series of logical deductions, and ends with what you're trying to prove. I love facts. I love absolutes. And so proofs were right up my alley. There was no second guessing. This is hard truth. And this is the exact kind of conviction that we have through faith. You see, this is objective about the world. It's not subjective to how we feel about the world around us. You see, as Christians, the faith is not belief in the absence of evidence. It is the proper response to the evidence. Faith is not just how we want to see things as they we want them to be, but we get to see things as they really are. And as Christians, that's what we are called to do. But why does it matter? Why does it matter we have this firm grip on what reality is? Because many people find it easier to borrow the faith of somebody else versus digging deep furrows through the good soil of God's word and finding out for themselves. You see, people like to read books about the Bible. They don't read the Bible. People trust what others say about the word of God instead of going to scripture and finding out from themselves what it says. We hear pastors, our, our favorite authors or Christian speakers share things and we take it as truth. We look to Facebook posts and blogs to gain wisdom. Now, don't get me wrong. There's great truth and the great information in some of those. But when we set that up to be our source of truth, our only source of truth, the consequences is if you take something that is wrong, then everything you believe in has no value. So our faith, faith must become authentic and not borrowed. Allow me to illustrate this in simple terms. My daughter Candace was eight. She was playing on a soccer team and this young boy on the team took a fancy to her. So he went to his dad, got his business card and came and said, hey, can you have Candace call me? I'd like to talk to her. He was confident that his borrowed information would give him his desired results. He was wrong. <clears throat> My wife quickly pointed out some very authentic truth to him. This is not going to happen. Not with my eight-year-old girl or 16-year-old girl or whatever age she's going to be. <clears throat> um, they get to date when they're 32. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, so we have to live in authentic faith. But what is authentic faith? I'm glad you asked that question. If you would take your Bible, Bible app, turn to John chapter 20. As you turn there, let me give you a little background here. This is right after the crucifixion of Christ. This is actually the third day. 
Mary Magdalene and some of the women are going to make final preparations for the body of Jesus. Now, their conversation on the way is, how are we going to move this stone? Who's going to do what? The only problem is when they get to the tomb, the stone is rolled away and Jesus is gone. So they rush back and tell the disciples and Peter and John take off to the tomb. Now, the Bible tells us that John gets there first because he was faster. This is proof that John wrote the book of John because he wanted to make sure everybody in the world from now on knew that he was faster than Peter. So he wrote that in there, so I'm faster. But when Peter got there, they went in, saw the tomb was empty and the disciples were perplexed. They were like, what happened? And they left wondering what was going on. And this is where we pick up in verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb And she saw two angels in white sitting there with the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. You know, Mary had spent a long time with Jesus. If you don't know her background, she was possessed by seven demons. And and Jesus came and cast them out of her. And from that time on, she followed him. And she went everywhere that he went, which means she heard him teach. And Jesus taught his followers that he would have to die and that he would rise again. I mean, he shared with them that you could tear the temple down and he would rebuild it in three days. He told them about the sign of Jonah, that Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days, so the Son of Man must also be in the center of the earth for three days. All of this had been shared to them, but Mary grew up in a world of borrowed faith. You see, she was a Jewish custom. They, they had such great teaching. They taught it from generation to generation to generation. Many of the, of the young men would have memorized the entire first five books of the Old Testament. But see, it was knowledge. It was all borrowed None of it was real. They did not believe, and it was not authentic to them. Now, I am the second born of five children, and being part of a big family has its ups and downs. And one of the struggles my parents felt when we were growing up was how do we spend equal time with each of our kids and not make anyone feel slighted or or judged? And so they came up with a system of creating a trip that we got to go on when we turned 16. We get to go for a week with my dad and we got to pick what we wanted to do and then he would arrange it. So I wanted to go to Colorado to go mountain climbing. So my dad and I got together and headed up to Colorado. And one of the days we were there, we were gonna do rock climbing and rappelling. Now that sounded like a very fun thing to do. And so we had done some low rope activities earlier in that morning. So I was very confident in the equipment. And then when we were at the top of the, of the cliff, I watched other people go before me and go rappel down the mountain. And then it was my turn. So, you know, I walk up to the instructor and he gets all my gear harnessed up. And then he looks at me and he says, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to walk backwards to the edge of the cliff. And when your feet are on the edge of the cliff, I just want you to lean back into a sitting position. 
and then you can just go down. So I'm like, sure. So I, I start walking back slowly. I get to the edge of the cliff and I freeze. When, you're, when your feet are hanging on the edge of a cliff, it is a faith check. You see, I had great information. I had all this knowledge and I had seen other people do it and that was easy. But when it came to me having to do it, I didn't have faith in what I knew. I remember just standing there at the edge, looking down, which you shouldn't look down, but I looked down and I was like, there's no way. But I remember the instructor being very patient with me. I just, just lean back, just take a seat. And I slowly began to process all my borrowed knowledge. I began to process saying, hey, earlier today when we did that low ropes course, I know about all these harnesses. I know about the carabiners. I know they're going to hold up. And then I got thinking through the people who went before me and, and two of those guys were much bigger than I was. And if all that held them up, it can surely hold me up. So as I began to authenticate my knowledge, as I began to make it real, I slowly began to let go of the rope and lean back. And then I was able to go down the rest of the, the cliff. And I can tell you it was one of the most exciting things I've ever done. And I am so glad that I thought through that and processed through that. You see, but this is what Jesus is doing for Mary in this passage. He's waiting. Everybody else is left. She's sitting there looking into this tomb and saying, what is going on here? And Jesus shows up, but she doesn't recognize him. He's like a gardener. He's given her that time to say, process it, Mary. You can get this. And she's struggling, but then Jesus does what only Jesus can do. He calls her by her name. He says, Mary. And in an instant, everything he'd ever taught her came crystal clear. She recognized who he was and she lights up. You know, I remember when my, my only son, Benjamin, was born. I remember holding him in the hospital and calling him by name and telling him how much I loved him. I mean, as a parent, it's amazing, isn't it, how much you can love something that you've never, that you just met? When your children are born, you're just like, oh my goodness, I love you so much, I would die for you. I remember talking with him and, and saying that to him. And I remember him just staring off to space, having no clue who I was. And I would tell him over and over that. And as days would go by, he would cry because he wanted his diaper changed. He would cry because he was hungry. And he was hungry a lot. Boys, my goodness, they can eat. And, and he would cry because he's sleepy. And all those times I would tend to him. I would love him. But nothing, no connection. He was just getting his need met and he was happy. But then one day I remember, I was holding him. I said, Benjamin, and his head turned. And he looked at me and he smiled. And he began to follow my lead and obey my voice. Well, sometimes. But I remember that connection point. You see, that's what Mary was like. When Jesus said her name, she responded and obeyed his voice. If you turn again to verses 17 and 18, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. So then look at this. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And then she said these things to her. He, she repeated exactly what God had told her to do. So how have you responded to Jesus' call on your life? Are you doing what he has called you to do or are you borrowing the faith of others? Are you living out someone else's dreams? 
You see, the sad thing is those people may be doing exactly what God has called them to do. But what has he called you to do? What is your purpose? Don't let doing good with someone else keep God from doing great things through you. You know, C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity that to have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no real sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Thus, if you've been really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you are trying to obey him. But trying in a new way, a less worried way, not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he has begun to save you already. Not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside of you. Faith is responding to what God has called you to do. Now, I can promise you, it won't be easy. And it may even be scary. But when we apply the truth about God, that he loves us, that he cares for us, that he wants what is best for us, we can step out in authentic faith and follow him because of his assurance and the conviction. We have to stop living on borrowed faith. We have to listen to him. See, he's calling you. I mean, can you imagine how different our lives would look if we started living authentically in who Christ said we were? If we started living in authentic faith? Can you imagine how different our communities would look if we just walked out our faith every day? Are we being the evidence of Jesus to someone else? Do they see Jesus in you as you live your life? And the cool thing is Christ has personal knowledge of all people. He calls them by name. Just as he called Mary, he knows your name. He knows you and makes himself known to you. I want to share a story with you. Uh, Brian Head Welch is the lead guitar player of a metal band called Korn. Now, Korn is a, a very successful metal band, but with success often comes great temptation. And he was addicted to alcohol and drugs. Uh, Brian was married. They had a daughter uh, shortly after they divorced, and she died of a meth overdose. Now, Brian was using meth daily himself. He talks about drawing a line of meth and then driving his daughter to school. Just a destructive lifestyle. But in 2005, a realtor who was working with Brian invited him to church. Brian accepted the invitation, went to church and heard about Jesus. And it impacted him in a big way. He went home, drew a line of meth, took it in, and then looked up to heaven and said, God, if you can, free me from this addiction. Within moments, he stood up, grabbed all the drugs on the table, threw them into the toilet, and flushed them away. Never did drugs again. He quit the band corn. He dedicated his life to following Jesus and to raising his daughter. He spent hours studying the word of God. He, he, he cut a, a solo album that, for, that was Christian, that was based on what God had done in his life. He raised his daughter and loved his daughter. And then something weird started to happen. He felt God calling him to go back to the band Corn. Now, now, Brian 
was like, I, I was there. It was not good. I mean, that's where my destructive lifestyle was. And God was like, I need you to go back. For two years, he wrestled with God. And then finally, he realized what God was telling him. God was saying, I want you to be a light and go back into that darkness. And I want you to love people like I loved you. So Brian went back and joined Corn. In this time, the bass player for Corn has also accepted Christ. And now before shows and after shows, Brian and the bass player, they go out into the crowds. People waiting with their tickets to get in. And they walk out and they say, hey, who, who needs prayer today? Who is hurting and needs someone to pray for them? And they go minister to people. They go love on people. Now, I need you to understand uh, Brian Head Welch. I think he's a pretty cool looking dude. He's got dreads down to about here. He's got awesome tattoos everywhere. As a matter of fact, he has Abba Father tattooed right there on his arms. People are just drawn to him. And they go out and they love people for Jesus. I was watching a, a Liberty Convo that Brian Welch was speaking at. And, and as he's talking, he talks about as he studied the word of God, he came across Psalm 139. Now, Psalm 139, David wrote out of reverence for the holiness of God. And he talks about all of God's attributes and, and God's all-knowing his, and his knowledge and just how he, nothing can be hidden from him. But as Brian read through that, he was inspired to rewrite it, to paraphrase it as God was speaking to us. And so I'd like to share with you a little bit of what that looks like. I want you to imagine that God is speaking this directly to you in this moment. He says, I have examined your heart and I know everything about you. I know when you sit down or stand up. I know your thoughts, even when you're far away. I see you when you travel and when you rest at home. I know everything you do. I know what you're going to say even before you say it. I go before you and I follow you. I place my hand of blessing on your head. I made all the delicate inner parts of your body and knit you together in your mother's womb. I watched you as you were being formed in utter seclusion, as you were woven together in the dark of the womb. I saw you before you were born. Every day of your life was recorded in my book and every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. God is saying to you this morning, I saw you as you struggled with that relationship. I hurt for you as you lost your job. I was there with you as you were hurt by what other people said about you. I see you now as you pray. And I'm here for you in this moment. And I want to have a relationship with you to free you from any guilt and pain. Will you accept me? Will you accept me? If you would pray with me.